You're listening to the CLE Foodcast with Lisa Sands, the place for delicious conversation on local food and the people who grow, cook, and share it. Here's Lisa. This episode takes us all the way to the West Coast of California to talk about a really important issue, sustainable seafood. My guest today is Matthew Bowden, the executive chef at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, where he's an advocate for conservation and sustainable fishing and eating practices. The aquarium is known for their seafood watch list. You can view lots of resources at seafoodwatch.org, where the organization shares important and timely information on the sustainability of farmed and fresh caught fish. This episode is presented with support from Tomato Monster Heirlooms, growers of some of the best heirloom tomato and pepper plants in the Cleveland area. I just discovered these guys and I want you to know about them too. They are obsessed with helping you grow the very best tomatoes and peppers. In fact, Lee and Adam grow more than 50 varieties of tomatoes and 19 varieties of peppers. You should check them out at tomatomonsterheirlooms.com and get your orders in because some of their varieties sell out really fast. And something else really cool, all of their upcoming plant sales support local organizations like Old Brooklyn Development Corporation, Food Strong, and Refugee Response. So they're a local small business that's also giving back. Stay tuned because I'm going to get my tomato and pepper plants here this year, and you can see how they work for me. And I am definitely a novice vegetable gardener. Head to tomatomonsterheirlooms.com to get started and follow along on my Instagram at CLEFoodcast for more details. Well, I can think of something that goes great with tomatoes and peppers, seafood. So today's guest has a lot of knowledge about how we can enjoy fresh seafood on our plates with an eye on the next generation. Let's meet executive chef and seafood advocate, Matthew Bowden. Hey, Matt, thanks for being with me today. You are on the other coast, uh, a coast that I love very, very much. How's it going? It's going amazing. Thanks so much for having me. It's beautiful out here. You're missing out for sure. Well, the good news is I have been to the Monterey area. I have been to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and it is really something to see from, you know, a tourist perspective. But today I am chatting with you about, you know, I don't even want to say some of the behind the scenes stuff because I know it's very in the front of your world, but we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the things that Monterey Bay Aquarium is involved in and also you as their uh, chef in residence as their executive chef are doing around the seafood watch program. And so let's start there. Tell me a little bit about how you got involved. Uh, how did you find your way to Monterey Bay Aquarium? I'll tell you, you know, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate. That's how I, I call it a, a stroke of luck, if any, I mean, of all the, of all the places in the world to end up, this is probably one of the most incredible places for a chef to be. When you think about not only from a location standpoint, being right here in the Salinas Valley, full of the world's most amazing produce and the, the breadbasket of America, grill, but being right in the Monterey Bay where you have the most incredible seafood um, and some most incredible resources to guide you in buying right seafood and determining the right seafood to buy with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. I've actually been here for eight years. And if eight years ago you told me I would be working at an aquarium, I, I probably wouldn't have believed you. Um, but it has given me the opportunity to help guide so many other chefs and help develop so many other programs across the United States. Um, I work for a group called the SSA Group. Um, and we have over 90 partnerships across the United States and cultural attractions and zoos, aquariums and museums. And we focus specifically on that. 
Uh, so we actually have a much wider reach than the Monterey Bay Aquarium. So it gives us the ability to use their knowledge and their tools to truly reach uh, a massive audience of tens of millions of people a year. Wow. Well, a few years back, I became familiar with the program because we had some chefs here in Cleveland that were participating, um, I think, in the program as like a chef collaborator. I mean, I know they spent some time out there. Uh, chef Doug Katz was one of them. Um, a couple of the other chefs, I think, have have moved on outside of Cleveland now. But so Doug is a, a regular sponsor and listener of this podcast. And, you know, he's really a leader here, a, a thought leader in in the culinary world. Um, if in his restaurants, I mean, he, he cares deeply and makes his interests known and he carries those interests and, and concerns into his, you know, restaurants. So that's really where I got familiar with this. And I hadn't really given it a thought, but selfishly, we live on a great, great lake. Uh, it is an amazing place to live, Cleveland, Ohio, the North Coast. And so I think we have a real sensibility here, most of us, a lot of us as consumers, to care about the lake, to care about water, uh, animals, wildlife, and, and, and on a greater level, the planet. So I think we can really relate to some of the things that you were just talking about, your passions and the work that Seafood Watch is doing. So what does a chef at an aquarium get to do or how do you get to impact people that come through not only the Monterey Bay Aquarium, but some of the other properties as part of SSA? I will tell you first and foremost, Doug is is probably one of my my biggest culinary heroes. Um, and so I could not be more excited to be part of something that, that he is a part of in, in a movement that, that he is so dedicated to. Mm-hmm. When I was in culinary school, I, I looked up to him so much. And so I, I will never forget meeting him for the first time and then being able to work with him going, this guy, like he's the guy. He's 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 been so involved with sustainability um, and spreading that message for so long that it, it's just, it, it's incredible sometimes to be around the titans of the industry like him. So I, I'm, I'm humbled as a chef to be able to, to carry that torch and to continue that message. I think some of the things that, that I'm able to do at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, you know, is, is help spread the message and help get people excited. I think one of the overarching themes of Seafood Watch that you'll, you'll always hear, Seafood Watch at its very core is a scientific program, right? It's, it's a group of scientists that, that do meaningful work that are trying to better the world by keeping the world's oceans full. Right. That's what we want. We want a future for the world's oceans. We want to make sure that generations from now, people are still able to enjoy the bounty of the ocean. In doing so, that program only works as long as people are interested and as long as people are asking questions and getting engaged. And so I look at my work is getting people engaged, is getting them to want to ask questions, to want to know more. You know, I think it's it's our job as consumers to ask those questions, to get involved and to be, be part of the process. You know, we, we need to want the future just as bad as groups like Seafood Watch. And we need to develop that plan and then execute on that plan. Seafood Watch can only do so much. Um, you know, what really carries the weight of the program of Seafood Watch is that when Seafood Watch speaks, people act, right? And so that mm-hmm. tool for Seafood Watch, just as much as Seafood Watch is a tool for us, you know, we as consumers are the tool for Seafood Watch. And they know when people say, hey, do not eat bluefin tuna. And people are going to act, you know, and, and so there's there's a drive behind those changes uh, that, that the consumer truly is in the seat to make the make the change. And it helps, I would imagine, um, where chefs are over the last 20 years, I've seen chefs become sort of from these behind the scenes guys 
that uh, to these major influencers, right? They really, they're in the forefront. I mean, I guess to some degree we can thank, you know, the Food Network for that. But just in general, I think we look to our favorite culinary pros wherever we are and what's on their menu. It, it, it sparks a curiosity. You know, I remember this is probably going back like 15 years ago, going to, it just happened to be a Michael Simon restaurant, Lola. And I remember seeing um, for the very first time skate <laughs> and, you know, the the servers talking about like, oh, you can have this and this and this. And, and then tonight we're featuring skate. And I remember the first time I thought, what, what is skate? You know, I, I didn't know. Right. And now I think, again, that's just one of the fish that you hear of. You see it, you can buy it now in your grocery store. It's just familiar and comfortable to us. And I think that's the biggest barrier uh, that consumers can face, right? I mean, I'm a food adventurer. So if a chef tells me to try something, I tend to say like, yes, I'll try it. I don't think I was always like that. So how do you view your impact you can make as a chef? I want to go back to the aquarium right now. And I know that your work is so much more than that. But do you feel like um, that aquarium experience is really pivotal for people? Does it does it awaken something in them, a curiosity, or do they connect the dots and say, oh, yeah, this is this stuff is really important? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think anytime you can touch something, right, you can you can feel it, it, it you can experience it. it. It's so much more impactful. To, to your point of chefs being influencers, I think the word influencer drives me crazy, but, me but too. They, they do influence change right and and so it is it is so important in in the work that we do and, and 20 years ago you didn't want to see your chef any more than the person changed oil in your car right like you, you do a job and that was it and, and if the chef came out to your table and said hey how you doing good morning let me tell you about your fish or your your beef that you did what are you doing why are you out here talking to me you know and now it's it, it has become this role and and, and you trust chefs almost as much as you trust your doctor, right? You're putting food in your body and, and you want to know that it's good for you and you want to know where it came from. And I don't think we'll ever go backwards, right? I yeah. don't think there's become a time where we want to know less about food. It's, it's, it's reached this crescendo where it, it can't go backwards. We're not going to go, okay, we don't want to know where it comes from anymore. We, we know too much. Mm-hmm. We know too much about how it's produced and, and people are starting to demand more of the people not only to cook their food, but to people who produce it. And so I think the more we can engage them with that, the more we can involve people with the process, the the more educated they get and the more questions they ask. And, you know, to some people that's dangerous. And to me, that's exciting. It gets people, it gets people engaged in the process and they become part of the entire solution as well. Well, and as a consumer, again, you're, you have the power uh, of where you spend your dollars, right? You could sit down and you can make a really conscious choice, to eat at a certain place or to order something on a menu. But the larger issue I think that you see, um, and I had a little taste of it. I worked for Whole Foods Market for a while. It was a decade ago, but that was really where I first understood um, the idea of different kinds of sourcing and, and, and how the sourcing mattered. So you're seeing that, you know, on your end as a buyer, as a procurer of, of seafood products. And then, you know, beyond that is like the whole supply chain, which I think can get really murky uh, for a consumer, which is why I think your, your consumer guide on seafoodwatch.org is really, really great. Um, I mean, there are so many resources on there. I didn't know you had that many until I started preparing for this interview. So what are you seeing on your end, not only as a chef, again, you've you've been a chef all over, in many, many places, including, did I read Rwanda? Yes. Yes. <laughs> 
what I thought. You've been a chef in so many places. So now you're a chef in in California. You're on the the most amazing you know coast of the, of the Pacific Ocean. I, I've got to believe you think about this stuff, and you're immersed in a lot of education. So give me a little bit of an idea of some of the things that you've learned or that you've been exposed to over the last couple of years that uh, you'd like, um, you know, people like myself that go out and, and make these choices. What do we need to know? You, you keep saying that the West Coast is is so beautiful and, and I'm originally from the East Coast. So Ma, if you're listening, home's still my favorite. Don't think I've switched. But I think it is important for people to understand where your food comes from. And traceability is key, right? You know, in, in Seafood Watch, you hear that a lot. Traceability is one of the, the key components. And where does your fish come from, right? It's, it starts in the ocean, it ends up on your plate, but there's so many steps in between. And I think using that Seafood Watch guide, that Seafood Watch website, it is such an integral part of your decision-making process. And the decision-making process starts far before you get to the grocery store, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you started looking before you got here, before you started preparing for this conversation. You know, that's the kind of preparation you do before you go have a meal, you know? And it seems silly, like, to hop online before you go shopping, but it, it really does make a difference. And one of the most integral parts of Seafood Watch, again, is the consumer and asking the questions, right? And so I, I picture like this, right? If, if you go to the grocery store today and you go to your fish section and you say, hey, listen, I want sustainable salmon. They're going to go, okay, that's what we have right here in the front. And they're going to give it to you. And then tomorrow, if I go to the grocery store and go, hey, I'm looking for sustainable green choice best or best choice salmon for seafood watch you're gonna go wait a second i heard that yesterday mm-hmm. and then somebody else comes in and then you come back next week and all of a sudden they start hearing this continued request you know that's that's what affects change you know when 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 sales are affected when sales are driven or decline people start to pay attention i think and that's that's where the consumers have the power and i think a lot of times we underestimate our power to make change as an individual you know when you look at California, right? The West Coast in general, the West Coast ground fish recovery, right? Getting people to understand what black cod is, getting people to understand what rockfish is. These fish were overfished and then they went away. They recovered the species, recovered the population. And now, you know, there's an entire industry being built on it from fisheries, you know, to boating fleets to, you know, ice houses. Like it, it is, it is creating an entire ecosystem around this fishery that was once decimated mm. and is making care of an entire community. And I think that that kind of story is only possible with the consumer. And I think it's really easy to think, hey, I'm one person, what can I do? But it's that one person who asks the question to the right person that, that, that truly affects change. And so, you know, it, it sounds like a dream and a fantasy sometimes like, oh, yeah, sure, I'm one person, I can make the change. But it, it really does. You know, it's that one question. You know, where does my seafood come from? Where do you get my fish? Yeah. And you sometimes feel like you're an interruption. You're interrupting somebody. You're, you feel like I'm not going to bother somebody with this, you know, in-depth question, or maybe you're even a little concerned that the person answering the question, standing there helping you, isn't really going to know the answer anyway, you know, but I do think that's changing. I mean, at least the places where I tend to shop, I do feel like they're very educated. So I hear what you're saying. And I think that's a great reminder, particularly from a chef with your point of view 
um, to not be afraid to go in and ask a question about, hey, what does this mean? Where is this from? I mean, I'm thinking right now in my seafood case at my grocery store, and that is, is a very, very good grocery store. Um, we have some great fishmongers here too that I will shop at. But if I'm, you know, I go to my grocery store, I pro there's probably like four salmon right now, a couple like a farmed um, a, a, a fresh, I feel like, you know, there's, they're, they're going to be from three different regions. You know, sometimes I'm buying for price. Sometimes I'm buying for a flavor of a salmon. A, I don't want sockeye. I don't want something that's that bright orange, really fishy salmon. I might want something that's, um, is it, is it Verlasso? Yep. That's yeah. Verlasso, yeah. Verlasso salmon, which is kind of that good all purpose, you know, whatever. But I do find myself, wondering about fresh caught wild caught versus farmed and, and I, scary. it gets yeah. murky like which one's which yeah and, and and i think you know listen 20 years ago the word farmed was like oh, who farms fish that was like a new thing you know and 10 years ago it was like really really gray still and you know eight years ago when i started here it was still like hey most of the farming is not great you know we have people that are doing it well now mm -hmm we do is we try and highlight those people, you know, like we use Aura King salmon here, you know, and they're a green rated best choice farm salmon. And, and, and what that does is it takes everything into account, right? Like we look at them and say, you're doing the right thing. We want to support you because mm -hmm. we want to realize that's the right way to do it, you know, and, and, and that's how we use our buying power when we're looking at, you know, who we're going to support, not just here at the Modern Bay Aquarium, but SSA in general, it's who's doing it right and how do we influence the general industry to move in a more positive direction around sustainable farming, sustainable fishing. That's what we want. And that's why Seafood Watch exists in, 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 in its infancy and at its core is like, Hey, let's, let's keep the wild caught resources available. It's, it's the last wild hunt, right? Like nobody's mm -hmm. out cows, nobody's out hunting sheep, nobody's out hunting pigs or chickens. We still go out and hunt fish. Right. Like it is last wild hunt that exists on this planet. When you think about that, like there's something so yeah. incredible that we can still go out and hunt it and gather it and bring it home and enjoy it, right? Like that's, you don't see venison being sold in large amounts or elk or things like that, bear, like the last wild hunt that, that commercially is fishing, you know, and it is, it's abused on such a large level that it, that it almost makes people think that it's commercial, but it's still wild, mm -hmm. you know, it's wild resource and the, the the groups like seafood watch that are out there trying to keep this resource around for us you know it, it, it is it is such an incredible thought you know to be to be involved in that and i think that's when you look at people like chef doug you know and rick moon and, and those guys that are on this blue ribbon task force and part of this program like you have such an incredible voice you know mm -hmm. to you such a unique way you know that, that that 30 years ago 20 years it wouldn't matter you know, and now it's such a it's such a huge piece for us to be able to drive change through food. Yeah, I think it's the most important thing that we do on a lot of days. Have you had an opportunity through your work there to go out, you know, on a big uh, fishing expedition on a fishing boat to see what that is like? Have you had that firsthand experience? Yes, I have. I'm a hot mess on a fishing boat. I will tell you, um, I'm the Dramamine guy. <laughs> like, yeah, call me when it's over closing my eyes. Um, I'm not meant to be a fisherman. I am meant to be the cooker of the fish, uh, for sure. And so I, I have, it is absolutely inspiring to me. I mean, the, the work they do is incredible, right? Like they, they risk life and limb to bring us food, you know? And I right. think a lot of times it's no different to me than when you look at a, a, a resource like protein, pigs and cows and chickens. Like if you had to be there on the farm 
you would look at it a whole lot different, right? And the same thing on these fishing boats, you know, like when you're standing on that boat with them and they're they're pulling this gear in or they're catching these fish and you see it come out of the water and you understand the the life it was given for the food that you got. I mean, it's just such a, you become part of the ecosystem, right? You become part of the process. And I think like we've been talking, becoming part of that process is key. And whether it's part of the process on the boat, which I wish everyone got the chance to do and I hope that they all don't get as sick as I do, or being in the kitchen or being at the dining table, like you're part of that process. Every one of us is part of that process in one capacity or another, right? You may not be the chef in the kitchen, but you're the diner making the decision. You know, you may not be the person at the grocery store, but you're the person eating at the table. You may not be the fisherman, but you're, you're part of the person asking that fisherman to go out and catch that, that resources. Knowing and understanding that you're part of that process in one way or another is an integral piece of, of, you know, riding the ship, if you will. Yeah. And over the last several years, there's been a lot of, you know, media coverage and just awareness of, you know, where meat comes from, how it's raised, how your eggs, where your eggs come from, all of that. And I do think that, you know, outside of watching Deadliest Catch or something like that, I, I don't know if the average person sees sees what that entails. And then the other thing I think about with that is they bring up these big nets full of fish, sea creatures, whatever they're catching for the day. And it, it looks like such abundance, right? But um, again, we're we're feeding a a global planet, and it definitely prompts me to ask you the knowledge that you have. Do you get a little bit nervous about where we're at as a as a planet with regard to our uh, the bounty of the oceans? What's what's there? What we can tap into? I mean, what are your sure. deep dark thoughts that you that keep you up at night? <laughs> Well, not the ones, not the ones about fish. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would say, you know, to your point, you know, when they come up with those bountiful nets and it looks like a, a bountiful resource of everything, that's that's actually the biggest part of the problem, right? Is you have everything in that net and it's not targeted fishing. We are bringing up the wrong species. And, and 50, 60 years ago, that net would have been full of just the right species. Mm. And now, of not the right species because there's not enough of all those. And, and so I think that those shows can be misleading, you know, and those those visuals can be misleading. And from a, a deep, dark, what am I scared of secrets? I mean, my hope is that the generation after mine and the generation after that are able to access the same food I have, you know, and able to do so with a, a clear conscience. You know, the, the biggest thing for chefs now is yes you can access it all it's all still there yeah you can get bluefin tuna is it the right choice absolutely not you can get unagi is that the right choice absolutely not you know and, and so all these things that are available yes we can do them they're still here and, and and the pessimists could look at you and go oh you know what it's still here they're wrong i can still see it you know but you can't see under the water you know and that's why we rely on resources like seafood watch and these scientists doing the research and saying hey we're telling you right now we're depleting the resource. And if you're not careful, it won't be around. And it's easy to turn a blind eye sometimes and go, it's not my problem, but it is. Doing so with a clear conscience is no longer possible for our generation. You can do it, but you can't do it with a clear conscience. Mm. You know, I want the next generation to be able to say, I want to eat bluefin tuna and I know that I can do so and it's the right thing to do. And I know I can eat orange roughy. But right now, you know, we're focused on things like Trout, Arctic char, cobia, black cod, rock cod, those are the things we should be focused on. Eating the right fish because they're sustainable and they're in abundance, you know, but 
if we're not careful, those go too. So it's when we're eating and we're still asking those questions. You're not going to know unless you ask. You have to ask and you have to do the research. And that's that's our job as consumers. Well, and something like um, like whitefish, there's a lot of whitefish out there. And I, I wouldn't argue that in any way that, that quote, all whitefish is the same. But whitefish has a lot of the same characteristics. You know, there's textural differences, things like that. So I think the substitution for me from a whitefish to a whitefish is pretty reasonable. I am curious when you think about like um, salmon or um, tuna, what kinds of things are out there? Those are really specific. I I feel like I just read that swordfish actually was kind of plentiful, but uh, that sort of surprised me. So maybe that was wrong. You know, when I think about some of those fish that are like sort of signature and central to a plate, um, maybe not like battered and fried and whatever. So I'm wondering how, how are those fish doing? And, and if they're not doing particularly well, like when you're planning a menu, what might you substitute or how do you approach uh, selecting fish like that? I, I probably sound like a broken record, but I'll, I'll harken back to the, the seafood watch app, right? Like, or the, the, the website, you know, mm-hmm. the, the benefit of that website is it's constantly changing. You know, it is, it is constantly being updated and it is current, you know? And so, so understanding that that is a resource that is that is upkept for our benefit, so we can make those right choices. I think is key. Mm. You know, the big fish, right? The the tuna, the salmon, the shrimp, stuff like that. That is always going to be on your plate. There's there's a lot of alternatives, right? So yes, bluefin tuna is a no go, but there is some tuna that's acceptable, right? But we don't want to eat bluefin, right? There's shrimp and shrimp farming that is absolutely not good for the planet that is destroying mangroves we want to be careful but there's great alternatives like kawaii shrimp in hawaii you know there's there's these places that are doing it right i think in 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 that seafood watch resource really gives you the tool to say i'm making a conscious decision to do the right thing and to focus on the right fish Mm -hmm. and so alternatives i think is is the key knowing that yeah you may want to eat bluefin tuna tonight but that's not the right choice. And, and, and here's the alternatives. And I think one of the biggest benefits of Seafood Watch is they give you alternatives. It's not, don't right. do this, don't do this and that's it. You know, it's not a, it's not a hard no. It's not a, a hard stop. It's, this is a really bad decision, but here's a better one. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is key. You can't always do what you want, right? We learned that as kids. True, right, right. Well, I liked it. I saw the rankings, best, good, and avoid. So yeah. Yeah. So I guess if like I would if you don't really you don't care about anybody else but yourself, you know, you're not going to worry about the avoid. You're just going to do whatever you want. But then you're going to but if you're you have a little bit of a conscience, you're going to say like, all right, I'm going to stay in these two categories. And I believe that everybody deep down will make the right choice. Right. You got to believe, you know, if, if you can't if you can't believe at your very core that everybody given the opportunity would make the right choice then there's not a whole lot left. I, I, I got to believe that when people look at it and go, yeah, I can't eat this, but I can't eat that. Fish are, are just as beautiful as they are delicious. Given that, we want to keep them around. You know, we want to make sure that they're here. I mean, I can't imagine a day that, that I'm alive and I, I cannot eat fish anymore. I mean, it, it, it would be such an impact to my diet. It would be such an impact to my, my livelihood. I mean, it, it's just... It's such a big piece of who I am, you know, and not just because I work at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, but because of my chosen 
career path and in, in, in how I, I treat my body. This is a larger question. I know you're not a marine biologist, but I'm going to ask it. What do you know about the resilience of, of fish and species? How long of a time does it take? I'm sure there's a variable here, but how long does it take largely? Let's talk about the, the bluefin tuna. The uh, advisories of, of bluefin tuna have been out, I, I'm going to say, for a couple of years now. So but so so is it is it kind of like a rule of thumb that, you know what, you kind of you you take care for about a decade and then you see that the species has bounced back or is it, it, it I'm guessing it's more complex than that? I think it's probably a little more complex than that. Um, I wish I, I had a better answer for you. You know, I, I lean to the scientists. And like I said, I'm fortunate that I have them right down the street. They literally are two blocks away from me. And as a kid, I, I, I truly looked at being a marine biologist and now to have access to them and ask them questions and, and to think that my my career path would somehow cross theirs is incredible to me. Um, but I, I think I, I leave that to them. You know, I know that fish like rockfish, you know, they have 150 years. Some of them live, I believe like that's mm. think about that. A fish that lives for or 100 years or something crazy, their life cycle. And they don't start breeding for like something like 20 years. I know somebody's going to listen to this and tell me I have no idea what I'm talking about. You're probably right. But it, it's a, it's an extremely it's an extremely long life cycle. You know, and so when you're catching these fish at 10 years old, they, they don't even have a chance to breed, you know. Mm. And so as a chef, I look at it, I caught a fish, I put it on a plate, it tastes delicious, you know, but there is, there is, there's so much more complexity to it. And I think that's why we need these programs. That's why mm -hmm. they, you know, it's easy to look at them and get mad, right? It's easy to look at a group like Seafood Watch and say, you're telling me I can't, why not? I see them in the ocean, they're fine. You got to trust in them. You got to believe that they're doing what's best, right? That they have your best interests in mind. There's got to be a common belief with us all still, mm -hmm. you know, that, the good things still exist, right? Right. Come, yeah, I still sure. believe it's never going to change. Well, and again, uh, those listening who want to explore this, and I do urge you to check it out. It's seafoodwatch.org. There is a wealth of information on there. Um, Matthew, let's go back a little bit more into your wheelhouse. Um, you're obviously cooking, you cook all kinds of things, but uh, it sounds like you're very passionate about seafood. Give me a couple of ideas of things that maybe we should be considering putting on our plates right now. What's what's looking good to you? What are some of your favorite sustainable seafood uh, varieties that, you know, we can listen to this podcast and maybe we can run to our store or our fishmonger and ask about? You know, I'll tell you, there, there's one of my favorite is shrimp. You know, I think that the shrimp in general, there's some good farm shrimp. Like I said, like Kauai farm shrimp are fantastic. Shellfish are always a good option, right? You, you are... 99% of the time going to be safe with shellfish, clams, mussels, oysters, things like that. And there's a lot of good options from coast to coast, whether you're on the East Coast or the West Coast or down in Florida and the Gulf. I mean, there's shellfish mm -hmm. are safe in that in that bivalve piece. Things like trout, Arctic char, cobia, the West Coast groundfish recovery, like I mentioned earlier, is probably one of the biggest success stories um, in the fishing world over the past 50 years. Mm -hmm. And so... Supporting things like rock cod are, are huge when you see them in your grocery store, you know, and they're not a species we always see. And so to try new stuff and to get out of your wheelhouse is always fun. Fish fish forever has, has been daunting to people, right? You either don't want to cook it at home because you don't know how it's smelling like fish or you don't know how to cook it and it's not cheap to mess up, you know. And so I think getting into that world and, and having a little bit of fun, you know, take a mm -hmm. chance, try different, you know, ask the question and get involved in the process. And I think you'll be surprised with the results. Well, and there's very few things that are like a little butter, a little lemon, a little salt and pepper, maybe a little breading, 
It's all yeah, good. And you can always add more butter and more That's bread. It. And it's delicious. That's the answer. A little white wine. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. More uh, wine, more butter. It's, it's done. It's my favorite things. I'm going to ask you one last question about, I, I think this is a, it, it's an old trend. It's an old thing that's coming back. It's a new trend. You might even know where I'm going with this, but um, it's tinned fish. My gosh. I don't know if, if in California, everybody's like been there, done that, but here in Northeast Ohio, little markets, restaurants that do, you know, charcuterie and tapas and things like that are really getting in pushing tinned fish of all kinds. Uh, our, our food writer, Doug Tradner, just did a pretty lengthy story on all the places you could get tinned fish. He is very known for posting on his Instagram some snacks that he has. He opens up a tin of fish. He has some hot sauce and some saltines. And um, I have to say, uh, while I do use anchovies and things in my uh, Caesar salad dressing, and I, I have yet to explore the tinned fish thing, but it's not going away. And so I'm curious to know, um, is that a favorite of yours? And is that something that perhaps is another um, sustainable option for people if they're, you know, interested in eating more seafood? I will will tell you, tin fish, you know, is definitely an option, right? It it all comes down to what's in the tin, right? That's the question. I think as the consumer, it comes back to what, what's in the tin, you know, what into make, went into making it. Being at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, it is the original tin fish, right? Like this used to be a sardine factory, this place. True. Because when you want to talk about tin fish, this, this place was it. Um, you know, this Monterey Bay and Cannery Row was the original canning for the West Coast. Like This is where it all came through. This was the, the epicenter. And so being here now and, you know, looking at what comes through here, I would always say that fresh is best, right? Like that's, that's the option. You can get the best story. You know where it came from. It's, it's most traceable. But tin fish, right? I mean, it opens up a whole, a whole new slew of options. You know, there, there's the trouts that can be going in there now, the sams. There's cool stuff. And I think necessity is the mother of innovation, right? Like being able to work in new items and, and new cool ideas um, is key. But definitely, I'm excited to see all the new things are coming up. But people are dry aging fish now and tinning fish again. Um, it all comes back around, right? Like we're we're seeing milk and glass bottles all of a sudden again these over the past few years. Like it's it's cool and it's fun and what's old is new again and that's always exciting because you have a whole new generation that is reinventing the wheel, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so definitely from a consumer and as a chef, look forward to seeing all the cool new stuff they come up with. And you know, I I'm never opposed to trying something new, but tin fish is up there on my need to try list. <laughs> yeah, it's um on my need to try list too. I uh I I I prefer the the fresh fish variety myself. I think this has been a tremendous conversation. I know that you have uh as a chef, I I know chefs don't have a lot of spare time just in general and uh so I'm getting I'm guessing that you've got a pretty hefty to-do list, but I'm so thankful that you spent some time with me today on the West Coast where you are. Where are you from on the East Coast? Let's make your mom feel good about your uh hometown, your roots. Um, I'm I'm originally from New England. I I tell you what, there's there's nothing there's nothing like it when it comes down to the best seafood. I grew up eating the best scallops and clams and mussels and you name it. So I think it's it's my home. It'll always be my home. But I, I definitely consider myself more of a citizen of the world at this point. It, it's been an, a fruitful career for me. So everywhere is a little bit of home. My heart will always be in New England. 
I love it. Everywhere is a little bit of home. Hey, Matthew, thank you so very much for the time today. I really appreciate your insight into the culinary side of what's happening over at the Monterey Bay Aquarium and what's going on at Seafood Watch. Um, I appreciate that. I'll say hi to Doug Katz for you. (laughs) Thank you so much. This episode of the CLE Foodcast is a project of Fork and the Road Productions, and my sound engineer is Bill Connors. As always, this podcast is supported by Chef Douglas Katz and the Katz Group of Restaurants, which include two of my favorites, Amba and Zug. Doug and I would like to remind you about Harvest for Hunger, the springtime campaign of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Some of us have had some really tough times between rising prices, economic uncertainty, and the end of pandemic SNAP benefits. You should know that the food bank is still there for our neighbors in need, and you can be there too. It's really easy to help. When you head to your local grocery store, there's a program running right now called Checkout Hunger. Add a dollar, $5, or $10 when you pay for your groceries. The food bank will turn every dollar into three meals. Last year, the Greater Cleveland Food Bank helped more than 350,000 people. Many of those were kids and seniors. If you need food or know someone who does, call 216-738-2067 and get the help you need right away. As always, I thank you for listening. Until the next episode, stay hungry, be kind, and always, always set a bigger table.